I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Old Brother, a podcast about Salford slash Manchester's legendary musical institution, The Fall. Each week we invite along a guest to chat about their experience and memories with the group. As you know by now, we consist of me, Paul Hanley, and my brother Steve, who was a member of The Fall for 20 years. In this episode we're speaking to musical legend, well-known Fall fan and all-around renaissance man, Mr Henry Rollins, all the way from LA. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Old Brother, a fall podcast with me, Paul Anley, and my legendary brother, Stephen. Delighted with the guest we've got today, all the way from LA, sunny LA, I'm, I'm presuming it's sunny, uh, the legend that is Mr. Henry Rollins. Good evening, Henry. Good morning. Oh, hello. Hey, how are you? Great. Mm. Yeah, good, are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, LA is sunny today. Uh, it'll probably be that way till about uh, March of next year. Um, <laughs> well, there's, you all have been out here. There's not a there's not a whole lot of weather. Before we connected, I was trying to think of how close I've ever been to a fall show, and I've I never got to see the fall. But it was not for a lack of wanting to. Is this that you know? As you guys know, when you go on tour. You 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 play a lot of shows, but you don't always get to see a lot of shows. Mm. And so I I never got within um, ninety miles of you guys except for one time and scheduling. And I guess uh, Paul, you were not in the band in '87, but Steve, you were. Mm-hmm. It was um it was like summertime '87. It was in Hamburg or Frankfurt, Germany. It was like multi band bill. And we had a night off, and we we knew some people. It was Dehout, Bad Seeds, Swans, The Fall, and I, maybe someone else. And so I think, we, yeah, I think it was a festival in Hamburg. I think oh, it was. Yeah, it was, it was a fairly wild night, from what I remember. Of that yeah, night. It, it, 
It was indoors. Yes. And I remember lung leg of the girl from Sonic Youth fame. She was on acid and like hiding behind like some like scrim or something. And I said, are, are you okay? And she kind of laughed and like went into the fetal position. And <laughs> I remember we saw the bad seeds. They were great. De Hout was great. The swans were great. And I bet, I think, you know what? The fall were headlining. And we had to, we were driving overnight because we were there on a, a, a small tour. And so we couldn't stay. And I'll never forget walking by Bricks and Mark, who were standing shoulder to shoulder, kind of staring darts at like like don't talk to us and like they just had this, this look on their faces like don't even try it and i walked up to them like oh they're whoa no and i just kept walking because <laughs> <laughs> they reach up behind him steve <laughs> <laughs> i was practicing my darts look yeah 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 <laughs> no, I'm thinking you were stood behind Henry. That's when that Bricks and Mark were actually looking at you. Actually looking at me, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is a shame, though, that you didn't have. You didn't. After all that, you didn't get to see the band. Oh, I'm, and I'm, I'm. I've been such a fan for many years. I mean, I don't know what you know of me or anything, but uh, many years ago, I was in this band, Black Flag. Yeah. And yes. um, one of the the legendary things about the band sure. was the. Um, was the artwork, you know, like the flyers and the record covers. It was this guy named Raymond Pettibone, who's now like world famous, but um, he is Greg Ginn. That he's the guy who invented Black Flag. He's Greg Ginn's brother. His oh, real yeah. name. His real name is Raymond Ginn, and so I used to live with Ray. I, I lived in the back of the house. He was living in like in a little kind of tool shed. And so I would come into the main house because they had hot water and and food, and Ray would just draw one drawing after another. He would rarely speak, but he would just listen to records and draw Re drawings that are worth like, a, you know, a houseboat now. And one time he had a fall LP. He had the, the, the early fall collection. Yeah. And that was the first fall LP I ever heard. And listening to college radio, being on college radio as a, as a punk rock guy, I heard a few fall tracks, uh, no Christmas for John Case, um, totally wired, but it was that LP that made me go, wait a minute. I want to hear everything this band did. And right around that time, I met the birthday party. They were in Los Angeles and they did a, a show at the Roxy and they were amazing. And I was they talking to amazing live, you know, weren't they? What a band, no bad yeah, song. Band. And so I, I meet Nick Cave the, the next night. And when I said, so what are like any influences on you? I mean, I'm like this cub reporter guy trying to get information. And he said, well, early influence uh, on on me was the fall and the pop group. And I had heard of both bands. I'd heard of, you know, a, an LP's worth of fall tracks, but I'd never heard the pop group. I only knew them by name. And in those days, you know, we were so broke. We couldn't even afford records. We were just like buying food and, and guitar strings. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a long time to finally hear like, you know, the, the ever expanding fall catalog. But as soon as I had some change in my pocket, you know, years later, I started picking up fall records. And um, so my evolution, you know, as a fall fan was slow. But um, as soon as I got like the financial go ahead, I, I started acquiring fall records as best I could. Yeah, they're not the best band to follow if you're short on money. 
I was going to say that must have made a dent. Well, you know, also, you know, those were import records, and we weren't going to Europe all the time. We mainly were like an American band who played in America, and so those records were coming in at quite a stiff price, and so it made exploring with a with a record from the UK or Germany like, well, do I eat three meals or do I buy this record? And so, you know, in those days, you just kind of default to food, and so. Um, when I started going to Europe more as like touring opened up for me, I started being able to buy fall records like in Britain and Germany. And that's when I, I got the price break. And so things got better. Yeah. So, so what was the first fall record you ever heard then? Was that totally wide? Well, it, that was the first fall song. Yeah. And then um, that No Christmas for John Kay song. Because I yeah. just remember that, uh, that, that vocal. I'm like, that, that's interesting. And, um, but, but again, you know, there, there's no really real domestic releases for you guys at first. I think there was that America Therein on Cottage Records, but that was kind of obscure. There wasn't yeah. like one record after another. That came later. And so you guys were kind of the cool hipster college band you know like the you know the the aficionados had the records but i was a, a vinyl fan then as i am now i just was broke you know i before i yeah. joined black flag i you know i worked you know like those 60 hour a week minimum wage jobs as you do and i had a small budget for records so every week i'd buy like two or three records that's what i could afford but when i got into music i became like hyper broke like like no money for nothing except for <laughs> <laughs> and so my record collecting became almost completely like what bands would give me records and what record stores would give me a, a you know, the poor guy in a van discount. And so it took me quite a while to, you know, become in different financial straits where I could just go to the record store and like, pick up some records. So they're quite different from the bands you were in in the fall. It's quite an interesting thing that, that yeah. kind of spoke to you, isn't it really? You know, uh, yes, but, um, you know, I was raised by my mom pretty much and in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. And I, I'm 60 years of age. And my mom, we lived in like microscopic apartments in Washington, D.C. She worked for the government, which means like she rarely got paid much. But with her extra money, she would buy records. And while I don't have every record my mom had, she had pitch perfect taste in music like uh mozart beethoven uh glenn campbell barbara streisand like uh show tunes like it's not necessarily i don't need a barbara streisand record but those are very good records yeah yeah and, yeah and, and yeah. so it's a good, uh, good uh, education yeah and so I was raised on like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Lead Belly and, and all this other stuff. So I was kind of open-minded musically. And my being in D.C., you know, like every third building is a, a theater or a venue. And so my mom would take me to go see musicals. She would like drag me to go see like Hello, Dolly or whatever else. And it was all really cool to me. I didn't mind it. Yeah. And so by the time I got into punk rock, punk rock kind of made me a bit close-minded. You're, you're still not explaining how we Black Flag came about. <laughs> well, I, I I saw them in 1981. I knew of them, and uh, I was so excited to finally see them. They were from the West Coast. I was like 3,000 miles away. My friend Ian Mackay from Fugazi and uh, Minor Threat, we drove up to New York to see them play in New York, and then so we could catch them again in Washington, D.C. And so I saw them play three sets in like three days, and they became my favorite band. And 
I was had a, a I was in a small DC band and I was uh, working at an ice cream store for three seventy five an hour, and I just figured, well, this will be my life on my feet, you know, scooping ice cream and living on top ramen noodles, and you know, <laughs> you know that'll be my minimum wage life. How wrong day, were you? <laughs> yeah, well, one day Bruce Springsteen will write a song about me, and so. Um, <laughs> One time the band came to New York, but they didn't come to D.C., and that would be July 81. So I drove up to New York to see them, and by that point I kind of knew them. And um, I jumped on stage with them and sang a song for the encore. And um, they called me at the ice cream store like two days later, and they said, we're looking for a new singer. That audition was, you know, your singing was pretty good. You're crazy. You want to... um, (laughs) come back up to New York and audition. That, and that looked, just crossed my mind when I read it, but it's kind of, in a way they were kind of opposite to the fall in that they seemed to go through singers and... Well, it was a hard band to be in. Yeah, so the, the Black Flag would go through singers and the fall would go through everyone else but the singer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I went back up to New York and I, you know, jumped around in a room with them for 90 minutes, like singing songs I didn't know the lyrics to. And um, they said, well, you're in. And suddenly I go back down to D.C., quit my job, give away all my stuff. My best friend took my records over to his place and I jumped on a Greyhound bus, of which I still have the ticket for, and I met the band in Detroit and I moved out to Los Angeles and the rest, as they say, is history. And so in those days, I was kind of open-minded to music in that whatever sounded good to me sounded good to me. And that comes from being raised with every, by everything from my mom. Yeah. And, And so when I heard the fall, I kind of liked I liked you guys immediately. I mean, there was no like, what's this? I was like, that song's cool. Give me another. And then <laughs> um, a buddy of mine, he's a DJ. So he had a ton of records and I would always make tapes over at his house because I couldn't afford the records and I could afford a cassette. So I'd buy cheap tapes, go to Randy's house. He was a big LA DJ and he had the the totally wired seven inch. And I put that on. I went, oh, that'll do. And so that you know, I, I so I was borrowing fall records and making cassettes, and so like I said, you know, I I, I kind of got into you guys as far as a vinyl record owner later in the eighties, but it, yeah. it took a while just because of sheer poverty. But um, it, there's, it, I, it was never a thing where I, don't I suppose you heard the fall a lot on the radio, did you? On college radio, a little bit because little bit. in those days, you know, college radio, you know, the DJs were music fans like they're students right Mm. and and so they were bringing their own record collections to the radio station and that's how you'd hear you know the clash or the fall or even stuff like run dmc which was kind of underground for a minute and that was kind of a the 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 college radio network in the united states was open-minded where normal radio was like reo speedwagon and aerosmith and it was kind of big rock or go home still is isn't it <laughs> yeah, but you know, with with cable radio or satellite radio, you know, things have opened up somewhat. But in the eighties, it was either huge radio or underground radio or like college radio. Yeah, and so yeah. I pretty and being on tour, I'd spend most afternoons at some college station, you know, hijacking the station for an hour and playing songs and promoting the show that I'm about to go play in two hours, and so I got pretty familiar with college radio and even how to do a radio show, which helped me years later when I had my own radio show. And so um, 
um, that's how I, I got into a lot of British music um, just because I was hearing it on college radio, but yet I couldn't afford the damn records because they would come in like even a Buzzcocks record, which I love that band, but you know, their third album, that was like $23 in those days. And that's just, that's like $45 in yeah. current well, the money. The first album they had was that singles album. That was the first one that came out in the U S I think, wasn't it? Yeah, that it going you, steady. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And yeah. I already had the seven inches. I loved that band. Mm. And, um, yeah. What about the New York? What what was happening in New York? Did that have any sort of influence on you? Yeah, because you know I, I lived five hours south, and here's what was happening: all these great bands from London, were were England, were coming to America. The UK subs, X-ray specs, the Lurkers, all these bands, and they play CBGBs in New York, and they'd go home. And we're in Washington, D.C., five hours south, waving our arms, saying, like, like come on, don't, like, leave us. And the, one of the first bands that would play in Washington instead of just New York was 999. Right. And, and they, became, they got a big following in D.C. because they showed up. And, you know, the, the, the mere fact that they showed up, we loved them because they were there. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. so over the years, like, the Damned, they didn't come to D.C., like until 1979. And so we, just by our geographical displacement, we missed a lot of things. So when we all got driver's licenses and could drive, we would go to New York on road trips to hit the great record stores, which had every record in the known universe, and see these shows that these bands that would not come to us. So we started doing that strange. I think because every time we went, we went to, yeah, we'd do the, the whole of the East Coast. Yeah, but by that time I was probably on the West Coast. Really? Oh, so were you? Were you? Um, you were on the West Coast. Did you? Did you know Slash Magazine? Did you know Claude? Uh, oh yeah, Jean Claude Bessie, Kickboy yeah. Face. Mm. Yeah. He's a, he's one of my my favorite humans. I have every letter he ever wrote me, and um, we became good pals. Yeah, and um, he's just you know one of those guys who told the truth and didn't care what you thought of him. He was That's so great. much so much fun to be around. So smart. Yeah, the, really. The, the last time I saw him like face to face was at University of London Student Union, uh, November's 87. I was I did a, a talking show. It was me, Lydia Lunch, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce. He was at the show. Yeah. My friend luckily had a camera and took photos of us. It was the night I met Joe Strummer. It was a big night for me. Yeah. And um, then the last time I heard from him, he was living in Barcelona, Spain. Yeah. And um, I kept every – I kept every letter he ever wrote me, and so I still have them. And I guess he di- he he died there. Yeah, he, he lived in Manchester for quite a while. That makes sense. I could see I could see him liking Manchester. He was the like the VJ at the Hacienda. Okay, yeah, I probably so- I probably read that somewhere. Yeah. Well, we did a we did a video when when the Hacienda opened. They had this quite sort of basic video department. Uh, factory icon, they called it, and so they, they filmed all the shows at the Hacienda, and they also did some. We did, we did a video with them called "A Perverted by Language." It was called. I, I remember. I, I have I have the VHS tape of that. Well, you can hear Claude when it, on the on the interview when these marks being interviewed in his house. That's Claude asking the questions. Yeah, I haven't I haven't played that thing for like since like Reagan was president or something. Yeah, they became really good friends, Mark and Claude. You know, I could see. Those two guys getting along just because you know acerbic wit, smart guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, I was at a, 
uh, a poetry festival, uh, the, the One World Poetry Festival or Crossing Borders in 96. And the headliners were uh, John Cale on one night, Per Ubu on one night, and I think – I forget. So anyway, uh, but at least two nights, John Cale, who was amazing, and Per Ubu, who were incredible. I was on, you know, like in the afternoon or something. But on one of the nights, Mark was there with, with no band, just reading stuff. And like, so he hit stage. I'm on stage right watching, standing next to, I forget who. But before he hit stage, I'm like milling around this festival. It's all indoors. And I see Marky Smith standing there. So I'm like, well, you know, like, what's he going to do? Hit me? So I walk over to him and go, hey, Mark, you know, I'm Henry. I'm, you know, big fan. And he, he kind of recognized me and he said, uh, Henry, uh, you know, you want a drink? And, you know, I don't drink alcohol. And I, I think Mark kind of, you know, probably drank it for me. But we, we, we go up to the bar and he, 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 he buys me an orange juice because he's a really he's a real cool gent. And he's, he has like two hands, one hand full of beer in each hand. And so so he's got one beer for each hand. I've got I've got my orange juice and we wander into one of the little theaters and Blixa Bargeld from Einstein's into Neubauten is doing some spoken word thing. So it's completely rapt attention you know like everyone is like worshiping you know blixa you can yeah. hear hair growing and he's doing his thing and you know it's it's pretty cool and the, the event was put on by parker pens and so mark in this really loud voice like we're standing at the back near the door henry did they give you a free pen and <laughs> and, and actually they did and i went like Yes, they did. Like, we shouldn't talk. Someone's on stage. And he's like, what kind of pen or something like that? And I, I took the pen off my collar and I gave it to him. Like, have a pen. Shut up. <laughs> because, you know, people people are looking at us. The year was this? Uh, 96. And, oh, and, okay. And so. Just before I. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys were kind of out of there, right? Yeah. And uh, No, I, well, 98, I left. Well, I think, yeah, yeah, you soldiered on to like the Levitate record, right? And, yeah, and, that was my last album, yeah. Yeah, so so people turn around and they're like shushing Mark. And he, he just kind of like raises up his glass like and toasts them. And so I, I was standing on his right. And so I kind of gently move away from him just yeah. so he won't talk to me and interrupt the show. Because, you know, I'm not in, interrupting anyone on stage because I don't want anyone interrupting me when I'm on stage, you know. And, you know, I like Blixa. I've been a fan of his for 100 years. And so I, I'm like kind of yeah. – I kind of like drift away from Mark. And he sees that I've I've kind of gone away, and he closes the distance. <laughs> and he, and he, he's not very good, is he, Henry? And I'm like, I'm like man, you, you gotta you gotta shut up. And, and finally, he, people like shush him, and he raises his glass. And we, we we left. I think like he started leaving, and I left with him. So I wanted to converse with him more, uh, but you know, not in there. And so he was really nice to me, which meant a lot. And so either I think it was later that evening, he goes on stage and the in a bigger room. The place is packed. He's like on the main stage, and. He goes on stage and someone is trying to film him and he, he stops reading 
and he, he points with his left hand at the camera and waves it away. And the cameraman retreats into the darkness. <laughs> and so he's reading like something like you like Viz comics. Uh, and like he's doing his, his Mark thing. And it was completely amazing. And at one point he just stops and walks off stage, off stage right, drops all his words in this, you know, in that mark scrawl on the floor at my feet and storms off. Wow. Something angered him. So I pick up everything and organize it. And I just wait faithfully for him to return. And so the the nice guy who's booking the festival runs after him, like plies him with alcohol and whatever else to come back to the stage. And what was, he, what was going on in the in the auditorium while this was going on? People are just kind of you know milling around like it's what's he, and, and, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I think someone went on stage and said, "Be patient, it's Marky e. Smith. We're trying to conjure his presence back to the stage." <laughs> and so they they bring him back to the stage somehow, like four minutes later, which felt like an eternity. And I, I hold out the the paper like a, a guy handing a, a glass of water to a guy on the Grand Prix bike circuit and kind of gives me this like evil look and like snatches the paper from me. And I'll never forget looking down at the paper and just how indecipherable his writing was. I was amazed by it. And so he snatches the paper away from me and gives me this angry look and he walks back up on stage and reads like half of something else and then he raises up either a either a cup of something or a bottle and i think he said with dutch ale we will prevail thank you and he walks off stage and everyone kind of confusedly claps like I guess that was really good. And it was like like 11 or 13 minutes of total performance time. And he apparently, the legend has it, that he went back to his room and passed out for like a day and a half or something, which is probably much longer than he really passed out. But apparently he face planted on his bed and like no, no one saw him until spring. And, um, and so it was always like this great story. I like I met Marky e. Smith. And so like years later, uh, someone said, so you you met Henry Rollins. And he said, and I, I, I wrote it down. He said, uh, Henry Rollins is an effing lunatic who goes on stage and tries to be me, which made me laugh hysterically. Um, and I was like, oh, well. Tell you what, if you're trying to be Marky e. Smith, you're not doing a very good job of it, Henry. I was, I was about to say. And so um, – I, I all I could do was laugh. I mean, it, it didn't make me any less of a fan, but I was like, "Wow, Mark, you know, nice guy." And <laughs> I, I never understood, you know, like like Sonic Youth does appeal session of Fall Tracks because they're such fans, and they they ask him like, "What do you think of Sonic Youth?" You're like, "Oh, it's the worst thing I've ever heard." Like, they're, they're worshiping you. Why can't you be nice? <laughs> He didn't, he didn't have a lot of time for people who liked him, did he? That's what it seems like. And um, I, it never made me do anything but laugh, but I never understood it. And maybe you guys do? Like, what was that? Well, I think the thing you've got to remember is the person who does the interviews isn't necessarily the same. What He, he had a very – I mean, a real skill for doing interviews, Mark, and he'd say things that made for a good interview. It wasn't, I don't think it was always necessarily if, you'd, if you were sat next to him in a pub. If that's what it, you know, if so, if Sonic Youth had asked him, I'm sure he probably would have been nicer to them. But he, it, 
that was the thing with Mark. I think with interviews, he was very good at it. He didn't always he didn't always make for you know making friends, but he, I think he, he viewed interviews and things like that as a kind of part of his job to say something interesting. Well, uh, yeah, I just remember one day he like tore a strip off Nick Cave. I'm like, really? Nick Cave's yeah. pretty good. And like, uh, apparently Nick read it and like laughed his ass off. Have you guys seen the book that just came out of Denmark? The, the guy from the book company, Hans, just sent it to me, Slang King. Have no. you seen you know, it? Uh, okay. It, it, it hit my mailbox like, like four days ago. Oh, and is this it guy, the one with the quotes from? Yes. Oh, and okay. it, yeah, it, 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 it's hysterical. Like, it's so funny. Like, he's wicked. I mean, like, and brutal. <laughs> like, brilliant, brilliant things in between the songs, yeah. Yeah, and like, when he's not funny, he's just like eviscerating. Like, he's yeah. not a guy you want to get into it with. He's, he's just smarter. And uh, But the funny stuff, I wish I had a quote in front of me. God, he's hysterically funny. It's it's a really fun read. Yeah, I mean, he kind of moved. When, he was, when I first started watching The Fall, um, it was it was sort of a quarter of the act was what he used to say between songs. Yeah, he was wary of that of it being of kind of taking over a little bit. I think he definitely moved back from it, didn't he? He did. He took us back a good step because he didn't want to be you know known as don't know some kind of alternative comedian. Well, I, I wonder if he just wasn't able to help himself. I mean, you know, mm. if he's got like a, a live room and no, people are with him. Lighting men usually came in for a lot. Of- <laughs> 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 a lot of the quotes seem to be about the lighting man. But I mean, I don't know where they got this stuff from, but I mean, I think a lot of it is just off that fall website. Off the, I, I the have no idea. Online. All I know is I got the book for free, so I'm happy. So I, I wrote this guy, Hans, a, 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 a a, a, a thank is, you letter. I hope they got acknowledged. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, that, guys, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I use that website all the time. It's very handy. You know what? Um, yeah, like, well, uh, Steve, it was I gotta, valuable for to me. Yeah, Steve, I, I got to tell you, man. Um, the Big Midweek. That's just one of the best music books I've ever read. Oh, thank you. No, 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 tr- truly, I'm not trying to blow the proverbial smoke. I was um in Washington, D.C., actually for a funeral, which kind of sucked. But I was talking to a guy named Guy Pachotto from the band Fugazi. He's utterly brilliant. Mm. And we're both fall fans. And so we were extolling the many virtues of the fall. And um, he said, have you read the big midweek yet? Like, um, like I'm supposed to, you know, like have already read it. And I went, no. He said, hurry up and read it. <laughs> And uh, so I, I ordered it immediately. And uh, I, I swear, man, I, I, I couldn't put the damn book down. It's uh, I just wish you'd make oh, part two. Nice you know, it's uh, but I had no idea how freaking chaotic it was to be in that band. I mean, like, wow. Nuts. It's not like any other band, is it? I don't think. No, not at all. But um, if you don't mind, I have a couple of questions for you guys. And, and you yeah, kind sure. of. You- you kind of go into it in the big midweek, um, like perverted by language is just one of my, uh, you know, take me to my happy tape, happy place records. Um, I, I listen to, I listen to the fall a lot, but I listen seasonally. Um, there's like fall records for warm weather, fall records for cool weather. And I, I, I have it spaced out and I return to them like a, a homing pigeon, but in, in the October to December, it's like perverted by language. Almost the first time I've ever heard this. <laughs> I, I think it's nonstop genius from start to finish, but I think there's something in the book, how quickly you guys recorded that record. 
And yeah. like it was like a, a couple, a few days. And yeah. when I, I, when I hear that, you know, like with the fall, people always talk about Mark, of course. But when I, I do a lot of talking about the fall on my radio show and I write about them in my music books and I talk about Mark certainly, but I talk about the band because I think you guys were one of the most intuitive, kind of crazy talented units I've ever heard where it just sounds like you guys are just kind of connected and just working off each other almost in re- like in real time. And yeah. um, the fact that those records often got made so quickly, it makes them even more incredible to me because they don't sound like, okay, one and done, but it, it, it sounds like from what you wrote, that's kind of how some of those sessions went. Yeah. I mean, I think the longest I think we ever certainly any album I was on I think two weeks was the most and that that would have been uh, wonderful and frightening world of I think I don't think that was I mean certainly for recording I don't know how anybody takes any longer really I don't know what they do. No, I, I never myself. I never spent very long making a record. We used to just get it together at band practice and just kind of go in and lay it down and walk yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's not really difficult to do two songs a day, is it? I don't think. No, if you're ready, but you know, it just you know, this the way you guys work. It was just so different. I come from the more kind of a slow moving, like we're going to go into the basement, try not to kill each other, and like you know, like wrestle these songs out of our psyches and put them down. And maybe if we get like one a week without killing each other, you know, we're we could be very combative. And um, just so you know, like four people in the band, four leaders or whatever, four you know, yeah. four people with the mm-hmm. best idea. And so. Um, by the time we got to the studio, it was just like doing the live set and we'd often take the songs on tour. And so we, we'd work out all the nuts and bolts that were loose on tour. And we would just go into the studio and just kind of smash it and leave. But um, so I'm not used to taking a long time in the studio, but um, I'm not used to writing songs quickly like you guys did. And I think at one point in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Hip Priest came about at Soundcheck. I think, yeah. and like, you guys played a version of it that night. Is that is that possible? Yes, we did, <laughs> and, and that's just one of the best songs I've ever heard. I, I just think it's a it's a perfect bit of work. But um, it must have been interesting. There is sometimes where that things just click like that, and it all just comes together. Yeah, that never really happened for me much. I, I just come from a you know I just didn't have that kind of luck. Um, it just wasn't how bands I was in worked. It was rarely like, hey, I got an idea. Um, sometimes, but you guys seem to it's just you. You look at the the discography of like you know the, of the, you know the Hanley brothers, like you know Paul's on some records, Steve's on more, like y- y- yeah. But you guys are like records are songs are kind of like falling out of out of your heads left and right. So what was that? Would you write it like sound check? You, did you write it? And like, how did that work? That was, no, that was unusual to write a sound check occasionally, but no, not very often. Uh, I think we used to do it the, the other way a lot is that we'd go, we'd rehearse the songs, go in, record them and then take them on tour. And sometimes like you said, it probably is better to t- take the songs out onto the road and then and and work on them and hone them a bit better. I think there's a there was a right mix though, wasn't there? I mean, there was yeah. a few songs that were played quite a bit, then recorded, and then by the time they get actually on a record, you finish with them and started doing something else. 
So for for you guys, you know, when you were both on the same record, what was uh, the like the the hardest recording ex- uh, fall recording experience? Like the most, you know, like fraught. Uh, for me, I don't know. Steve, I'm sure Steve will have a few, but room to live, I hate. And why? Well, I mean, we um, we did hex, and that was you know that was like really well received and it was that was one where we 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 knew all pretty much all the songs really well and we really went in and we set up as if we were playing live and banged them down and it was it was a you know really positive experience and then mark wanted to change it up i think so he started doing things like making things up in the studio not having everybody on every track i mean i can see why he did it because he didn't want to make son of hex which i can understand with hindsight but at the time it wasn't a massively pleasant experience for me because you, we turned up one day and he hadn't invited Craig and Mark and it was just me and Carl and Steve and Mark that was a bit weird and then one day he didn't invite me and Steve and it was just Carl and him so it's not it's it was probably a good way to move on but it wasn't very really pleasant to be a part of I don't think so that kind of and, and the atmosphere around the band at the time wasn't great either was it no and is that is that why Carl plays drums and bass and guitar uh, on on Room to Live because uh, some other people weren't being invited in that day? Yeah. Wow. So um, I mean, I like all the song. I love all the songs on that record. Do you remember any? That is a, that is a typical of example of if we'd have taken a few more months to get them right, it could have been a lot better. I think. Oh, okay. I mean, I I find nothing wrong with that record. What of of all those like the the seven songs on the record? Do you remember any single song that was difficult or like that was was problematic? Um, uh, uh, Marky Cha Cha. But I think me and Steve had heard it once when we recorded it. Huh. Uh, Carl wrote it. Carl wrote the music, so he he wrote it on guitar. And because there was only the four of us there, he ended up playing drums. So we had to record it with no guitar at all. Wow. And then but me and Steve had only heard it once. And the only bit we'd heard was the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so then he you know, overdubbed the guitar after. So it was, it was, I mean, I don't know if you've heard, we, we did it again. We did it on the, um, we did it for the BBC one time. And it was a lot more robust, I think. But as yeah. I said that, you know, with hindsight, I, I can see the value in it. I, I just didn't enjoy it very much at the time. That's all. So, uh, how is how is it touring? You know, I uh, you know from reading the big midweek, uh, it seems there were there was like a lot of a lot of alcohol involved. Um, did you guys have fun on the road? No. Well, uh, the right word. I don't think. I don't think you. It wouldn't be top of the list, would it? If you're describing. Oh, yeah, if you said describe fall on tour in one word, fun wouldn't be the one that sprung to mind. I don't think. Oh, okay, well, f- fair enough. So, what what words would you say? Not to say we didn't have laughs and we didn't enjoy it, but uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the, the game. Yeah, it was. It was. A, it was kind of like a. Not that I don't. When I say a job of work, I don't mean that in a sort of slog kind of a way. But there was a, you felt a kind of responsibility, really. I think to do the gig, and it wasn't always easy to tell what would make a good gig and what would make a bad one. So you you, you were a bit worried all the time, if you know what I mean. I mean that that's what I get from reading the big midweek that um, you know your singer can be quite temperamental, and. Uh, uh, it that that book blew my mind because I you know I've been in I've, I've been in bands where it's tense you know like uh, black you know I was in this band Black Flag for five years I cannot describe it as fun 
I mean, uh, for me as well, fun, that's not a word that you would hear any member of Black Flag say. Because um, there's like a lot of violence at shows. We're not making much money. So we're living close together. Food's not always like plentiful. It was like, you know, a rough ride through, you know, Reagan's America. Um, and lots of violence at shows. And like it would, you know, bleed onto the stage and they'd always like swing at the singer because I don't know. And so I, fun was never it, but... um. I don't, I don't mean fun as in the opposite of unpleasant. I don't mean it was an unpleasant experience. It was massively, massively satisfying, I think, but just not fun wasn't the right way to describe it. Would that be right, you think, Steve? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. There was a thing that you were there to do, like you say, a, a job in a way. Right. So when when you guys uh, you know the Baker's the Baker's banquet uh, period of of mm. the fall, I mean you guys were prolific. You're getting radio play. It seems uh, things really opened up. Um, was that a, a good time to be in the fall? It was. I mean, it, it seems like you, you guys were going from strength to strength, and you know the records are charting. I mean, you know it, it was a, a real bright period. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of photos from that era and um, everyone seems, you know, like, like they're, everyone's looking good. You know, it, like the live shots, uh, you know, Mark even seems somewhat pleasant. And the records, like it seems to me, Becker's Banquet really went, went to they back. Were the, yeah, they were the perfect label for the fall, I think. They gave us a load of freedom and, yeah, more studio time and m more expensive studios and... And the records sound good for it. You know, you, I think they, do. They, they, they they really got bang for their buck. They did go along with Mark's idea of an album a year. So did Mark want to – did he want to do an album a year or is that Beggar's Banquet idea? I'm confused. No, that was Mark. And and so would there be singles in the meantime? Why, why for him, why an album a year? I think it – that was just his philosophy, wasn't it? To just keep on working. If you're in a band, you just keep working. Because it, it seems to me you guys would do maybe an album a year, but then there'd be all these singles. I mean, like it seems like records are coming out left and right. Mm. Where, like, uh, every year was kind of like kind of seldom. I mean, I just remember the Beggar's Banquet period of just like relentless seven inches, 10 inches, 12 inches, like four different versions of Hit the North. It's all this stuff, the picture disc. I mean, I, I have all that stuff. I think it's great. But uh, they, it seems like they really, uh, they spent money on you guys, you know, they like did, good, yeah. good photo sessions, but they got good music in return. I mean, I just, you know, I, I never had a fall member to ask, but, you know, from from looking at it, it looks like that was a, a pretty good time for the band. I think so, but that was just, when Paul left, <laughs> it's, 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 it's difficult for me to say. Yeah, it was great. I, I, I know, I know. You, you didn't mind saying it at the time. <laughs> so, I know. So, Paul, why, why, why? Uh, your last record uh, was Ben Sinister, right? You're on two songs. I am. 80, I wasn't really in 86. the band. I left. I left the end of '84 after "Wonderful and Frightening." Yes, yeah, right, yeah, and then um, really just to form my own band and see what that would be like because I'd never done that. Obviously, I was just in the fall from '16. I mean, rightly or wrongly, I thought it'd be a good idea to do it, and then I got asked back because the way Carl was, he was kind of he went AWOL a couple of times, and I did some shows 
and then he went. Uh, we got sacked to the end, and so I went back and did a little bit of recording. But that was just before they got Simon in. I mean, Simon was kind of the perfect drummer in a way, wasn't he? He was like, you know, he was. Mark, I think it was Mark's probably exactly what he wanted from a drummer. Well, he's on a bunch of records, right? Yeah, he's on tons. Yeah. And uh, so I think uh, if I um, so do you have, do you have a regret not going back then, Paul? Um, not really. No, I don't because I I could have gone back then. I thought I thought about it a couple of times because I could have gone back then. But I think I the reason I I think what sealed it was when I went back and we did that recording. I really really enjoyed it because I wasn't beholden either financially or you know because he was my boss. I did. There was a kind of a that kind you know that kind of pressure where you you're not quite in your comfort zone, which I think I think the fall kind of strived on, thrived on in a way, didn't it? Yeah. So I thought I I don't really want to give that up, you know. So I think it was a better move to not go back. So I don't regret it. No, I don't think so. I mean, in some ways, I'd like to regret that time on beggars. Then <laughs> no, no, it was it, that was exactly right. It was it was. You know, there was money in the studio. Like you say, the studios was good, and there was food. That was all, that was a bonus from when the first time round, people were eating. Yeah, that's the thing with with independent music. You know, you you become this like starvation artist. Like you know, suddenly food becomes this thing you talk about and dream about because <laughs> it's not like when you were in school and you had some you know three square meals if you were lucky enough. It's suddenly you're a musician and like you you never understood being that broke. No, I, I mean I was I was hungry pretty much from the age of sixteen up until the age of about twenty two. I think you remember being hungry all the time. I think a lot of that was my metabolism because I was long and skinny. But um, there was a couple of you know it wasn't a big priority. There was a couple of times where we record companies and things would take us out for meals and Mark would say, ah, you're all right. The lads will be all right. <laughs> yeah. Didn't bother. yeah, in in Black Flag, we would obsess over food. Like we'd make some money, you know, from a show and we'd all get like 10 bucks or something and we'd, you know, go eat. And we're just like, food became like this, we had this weird fixation with it because it wasn't always necessarily waiting for you yeah. when you were hungry. And when we finally... You know, years later, I was doing music, and I, we finally had you know money enough to where like I got some money, I can pay my rent. Food became like okay, I, I can eat, I can eat dinner, and it was like such a relief, you know, to, to be young and hungry and hardworking was it kind of sucked. Yeah, that must have been good, Steve, because you you had a young family, didn't you? So that time when you were a bit more financially secured, it must have been a lot of pressure off. Well, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh... It was the it, if if there was an ideal to be in the fall where it is like a an actual successful band. Well, that was the time, wasn't it? Yes. So your kind of thoughts of when you're young of being in a successful band. Well, it was exactly like that with the tour buses, with the bunk beds and the nice hotels, and it did make touring a lot a lot more pleasant. Yeah. So what do you think happened then? Do you think was it a deliberate thing to go go back to slightly bubbling under that, or because there was a push for the charts, wasn't there? I think there was, but I don't think I think I don't know what would have happened if we'd ever got there, but I don't think it was ever going to happen just because of the nature of the band. Just because of the nature of the band, yeah. I mean, I wonder if the fall ever got so successful, Mark wouldn't have thrown a monkey wrench into it somehow. There is that that there is that train of thought that people think that, but 
he did go like you say. The at that time there was all them where they'd re, remix the single and re-release it, and a week later and try and get people to buy it, and people were buying the same record over and over again. And he did go along with all that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess he he wouldn't have said okay, if he wasn't okay with it. It wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that was a. It was a sort of thing that happened in the eighties, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I used to go to England uh, quite a bit, you know, for touring, and I I had someone explain to me why is there like the seven inch with uh, you know the the B side is different, but the A side is the same. And they said it's all about the charts. It's trying yeah. to keep the song in the charts. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I was never at a record label that marketed me that way. I never that was never a thing, but um. In England, I would you know hit all their shops, and I've had a day off, like Tower or wherever else. Mm-hmm. And I would see so many bands doing that, where like it's the same A side, whatever it is, and like a, a live B side or or whatever else. And um, when someone explained it to me, it made sense. But um, I was I never cared about the charts. You know, like a, a band like well, mine. There, like, there, there is something not quite right, I think, about trying to get the same person to buy the same song over and over again. Well, yeah, I, I, I it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be anything I would do to my fans. Mm. You know, I, I, I just can't make them pay double to hear like three and a half more minutes. I just, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm willing to buy those records because I'm a nut and I like to buy records. But it's nothing, it's nothing I would ever do. And mm. no, no band I was ever in ever had any danger of charting. You know what I mean? Like, you know, big success was never. Part of my schedule because like quite successful were they? I I I, I did fine, but it's not like uh, number one with a bullet. You know what I mean? And so that kind of is like so. There's never that much expenditure on a video. There was it was you know we we gave singles to radio certainly, but and and you you know you did okay. Well, we'd be on MTV just because they liked us, but um. It's not ever going to be, you know, playing in front of 20,000 people unless it's a festival. It was cool. It's a lot more difficult to chart in the US, though, isn't it, than the UK, or it was then. Yeah. I mean, what what really helped us was uh, you heard of a thing called Lollapalooza. Yeah. Mm. Um, we were on the first one because we did a lot of shows at Jane's Addiction, who kind of owned the festival. And uh, one, one day I was talking with Perry. We were just doing one-off shows in the Midwest, and he explained what he was going to do with this thing called Lollapalooza. And he said, you want to be on it? And I said, hell yeah. And so summer 91, we – Every day, we're in front of more people in one day than we'd be in front of like in a month of our own shows. Yeah. And that really yeah. – it, it broke us out. Like our, our audience like doubled and tripled the year after because of Lollapalooza. So that was a big deal for us. That was a game changer. Yeah. That was 91, was it? Yeah. And and we went, you know, and that was the Rollins band. That was me with my own guys. Yeah. That Black Flag had broken up. Yeah. And, by, and that was like five years into the Rollins band. So we had a bunch of songs and we, we were, you know, could play very well together. But that was a huge sea change for the band. And then the album that came out in 92 did really well. And the one that came out in 94 did really well. So we had, we had a good time. We got to play all over the world and, you know, go to Japan and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I had a question for you guys. Um, it, it's just interesting in the, you know, like we're talking about the past, but we can all, also talk about the present. Um, Bricks and the Extricated. How did that come together? Well, that was, again, that was came from the book. 
Which book? The Big Big Week yeah. or The Fallen? <laughs> we uh, well, you know, obviously, traditionally, you have a book launch when you release a book, and we had one, and we put a band together, hadn't we, Paul, to do we yeah. to do some covers that were sort of relevant to, and a couple of fall songs, but some covers that were relevant to the book. So we did. Mr. Pharmacist, we did, didn't we? We did, and we did a uh, birthday party song and Mot the Hoople song and just songs that feature in the book. Do, do you remember which birthday party song? Release the Bats. Release the Bats, we did, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. so cool. With, with John Robb. With, with John Robb from The Membranes. I, I wrote John Robb an email not two hours ago. Wow. It's his birthday. It's his birthday, isn't it? It's his yeah. birthday today? I guess uh, he, he was 60. Oh, I will. Uh, I'll write him again and say happy birthday. He, yeah. he, uh, yeah, he, 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 yeah, so he helped me with a find. A, you guys would remember this. You remember the panic, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been a fan of that seven inch they put out a hundred years ago <laughs> since since I first heard it, and I I I wanted to re-release it, and John Robb helped me find Ian Nance. Who wow. helped yeah. And so we uh, have actually transferred the master tape and we're looking to re-release the record, my friend and I out here in Los Angeles. So wow. and, and John like then and I said, Yeah, I'm thinking, I hope he means that Manchester band because there's probably fifteen different bands called the Panic. Yeah, <laughs> but um that's that's the one from your neck of the woods. Yeah. And um I love I always love that record. And so um I've been in touch with Ian and I've been and I was in touch with John not like I swear two hours ago. So that's interesting you bring him up. He's a wow. good man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. He sang release the bats anyway. So anyway, oh, Rick, okay. So Bricks was in the audience, of course, because we invited as many sort of ex-members that we could round up. And then we met after and she told us that she recently got back into music and started playing the guitar and writing songs again. So we just got together and see see what happened. So what was it like for the three of you to be back together again? I think it pretty much worked straight away, didn't it, Paul? Did it? Oh, yeah, well, you did it You did it with Simon first, didn't you? Simon Rogers, yeah, but then he was too busy. So we put the put the band together with people from Manchester, with Steve Trafford, who right. was in the fall after me, who wrote Blindness. And and, uh, and so are you guys... Plays on Fallhead's role. Oh yeah, no, I yeah, I know who it is. Yeah. Um, I like that record. So, do do either of you guys have any any future plans for more writing? Yeah, I tried writing the follow up to the big midweek just right at the beginning of lockdown, but it just wasn't working for me. It was too it was too difficult. <laughs> What emotionally or what? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, I don't think it would have been pleasant reading about what everything that happened after, and and ah, it definitely wasn't pleasant reliving it all. Yeah, I hear you. That's a, that's a, you know, I th- I think a thing is I, I can't think it's universal. Everyone has a different story, but for those who have been in bands for like a lot of years, um, often there's relationships. There's like memories that are really 
not they're just tough to go through like mm. pe- pe- people i was in bands with you know while i was in bands with them there were like deaths in the family there were divorces there was like really intense real life stuff or just you know you don't like that person anymore like you hate their guts but at the same time you love the guy but you you never want to see him again and i don't have relationships with other humans yeah like I do with ex-band members. And there's like some people I see, you know, well, back when I used to go to shows pre-COVID, I'd see someone I'd been in a band with and, you know, I fought wars with that guy. You know, we, we, we starved together. I know him as well as his wife does. You know what I mean? Like, cause we went through hell and I, I, I have nothing to yeah. say to him. Like he, I, I'd, if he was hungry, I'd feed him, but like, I, there's not, yeah. I don't want to talk to him. Like, you know, I, I'd rescue him out of a burning wreck for sure, but we're so close. I just don't want to know anything more. Mm-hmm. That's funny about the fall. Cause you think of the fall as being chaotic and people and uh, arguing and all with in fighting and everything. But we all seem to get on pretty well these days. Don't we Paul? Yeah, I mean, I've been surprised because we've been doing this podcast, which we're going to have to wrap up. I think because we've done, we're, we're, we could be here, <laughs> but uh, we did and we've met. Even, we've spoken to people who were in the band after us, and people who were in the band, you know, at the same time. And Grant, who was in all the way through, mm-hmm. and you just every time we do it, I always think everyone's really nice. Oh, that's good. I mean, uh, I, you know, I was in bands that kind of broke, broke apart acrimoniously where there's like lawsuits. And so I, I've been sued by a member of Black Flag. I mean, that's, that's what I'm, so there's, there's some people wow. I hope to never see in my rear view again, but, um, you know, and that's because you become so close. It's like too <laughs> close. And I've never had that kind of relationship outside of doing music yeah. where it brings you so close together. It's almost like it's too much. Yeah. I'm not sure it's entirely healthy. Well, no, but it, you know, if that's what it takes to get the music across, you know, I, I oh, that's, that's fine with me because I, I think you should just sacrifice yeah. everything to make it happen. But um, yeah, I definitely paid a price to make music. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Well, well, on that, on that note, yeah. I think we'll, we'll have to wrap up really there. Henry. I really, yeah, really if, appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thank really you so much. And I, I must say, um, it, it was great to meet you guys, albeit from long distance. And uh, I'm such a fan. So thank you for thinking of me and, and letting me talk with you, be with you guys. It was an absolute pleasure. All right. Well, uh, absolute pleasure. yeah, I hope to see you Bye. guys in the flesh one day. Okay. Henry. Meet you soon. Thanks for joining us again on All Brother. Episodes are now released every second Friday, so you can watch the next episode in two weeks. Please follow us on Twitter, at All Brother Show, where you can find the link to Spotify and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or any other platform you care to mention. If you fancy giving us a rating on iTunes or tell your friends about us, we'll be more than grateful. If you require further reading, you can check out our books, published by Root Publishers. Hope to see you all soon, and remember, if you're driving, take your car. Ta-da! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.